the conversation around around climate change will be critically important to us and, and sustainability. So how do we sustain this industry? You know, I'm, I'm in a region where they're counting years of water left uh, based on measurements that we can take, right? And, and so, I mean, it's a, it's a sizable number of years, but it's still quantifiable, or at least we think it is. So uh, I, I think, how do, we, how do we think about sustaining uh, our industry will be, will be critically important to the to the future of the beef industry. So I, th I think, you know, we have opportunities to, to be better. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Podcast show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy Agrislat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy Agrislat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and I'm very excited for our guest today, someone I've known for quite a while now. Really excited to have a chat with Dr. Clint Crable here today. So Clint is a professor and administrator with uh, many years of experience in animal science and ruminant nutrition at universities throughout the Southeast, uh, Southwest excuse me, and Midwest. He joined the Davis College of Agricultural Sciences and Natural Resources at Texas Tech University as the dean in January of 23. He has two degrees from Kansas State, a BS in 1988 and an MS in 1990, and was a postdoctoral fellow at the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center in Clay Center. And most recently, before becoming the dean at Texas Tech, you were the department chair at University of Nebraska, so right across the river from us here in Iowa. And we're really excited to have a chat with you here today. So welcome to the show, Clint. Thank you, Dr. Hansen. Yeah, really, really honored to be asked to join you today and really look forward to a conversation. Yeah, so we're both ruminant nutritionists and particularly feedlot nutritionists. I think we have a lot of fun research interest overlap. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. I think we want to start with our listeners. If you could tell us about your story. So how did you get involved in the beef industry? What kind of led you to where you are today? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. Grew up, grew up in central Kansas, and so I'm I'm a rural farm and ranch raised uh, individual. My uh, dad was a, uh, a of course farmer rancher and also a ranch manager, and my mom was a public educator, and so she uh, she taught at the high school level. I'm I'm not first gen. But I like to tell the story that my mother and I were actually in school at the same time. I'm, 
I'm the youngest of four. And when she got me to a point where she felt comfortable that, uh, that I could be alone a lot of the time or without hurting myself or getting in too much trouble, uh, she went back to school and, and got a, a BA in English and German. And so she taught English and German at the high school level, had a, had a 25 year career coach forensics. And, and so, and I, it's just a, I think it's a good example of, uh, someone who was always passionate about education, didn't have the opportunity early on, but took the opportunity when she had it. And uh, very, very proud of my mom for that. Dad, uh, like I said, managed a purebred Semmental ranch. And so that really engaged me in the industry. Um, that was really in the, you know, the early years of the Semmental industry taking hold in, in the U.S., and some big things happened on, on that ranch. They raised a bull called Kojak. Uh, some on listening here will, will know who Telly Savalas was in the TV show Kojak. Uh, and they raised that first polled Semitol bull. And, of course, uh, the timing was right. And it was logical that they might, might name him Kojak, and they did. So uh, that garnered a lot of interest from geneticists at K-State. And so Bobby Shallis was a geneticist there at Kansas State. So he came out and, and really worked uh, with my dad and, and the owner. And, and there was actually a, uh, a LCC, a small group of individuals that came in collectively and uh, had partnership and, and some of the early genetic seed stock genetics in the Semitol industry. And so just those interactions and being around those scientists and scholars, you know, really, really shaped me and, and put me on a, on a good trajectory uh, with regard to a career path. So also judged livestock and went to Hutchinson Community College, started out at a two-year uh, institution there. Really, again, uh, a, a good opportunity and right timing for me being from a very small rural background to, to get engaged in, in education. And had a uh, professor there, Harlan Warple, was a PhD out of South Dakota State University, was a ruminant nutritionist. He taught our feeds and feedings class and was just a tremendous teacher. And so really, you know, that also inspired me and, and got me interested and engaged in nutrition. Of course, had the cattle in this, uh, interest. My grandpa had a grower yard and then fed a lot of cattle commercially throughout Kansas and, and Western Nebraska. So the cattle thing was just kind of a lifelong uh, interest of mine and, and pretty natural fit. So post, uh, post Hutchinson Community College, went to K-State. Uh, another story I like to tell is, is Jeff Stevenson was my uh, undergraduate advisor of course, reproductive physiology, mostly on the dairy side, but he engaged me in his lab, and I took the opportunity to to to, uh, to engage there. Uh, maybe because I was the only one that would get up all hours of the night and go tail bleed dairy cows. <laughs> he was doing a, doing a heat synchronization study, uh, needed some blood samples, and of course, I was willing to do that. But but he engaged me in research. Really gave me my first introduction to research, but knowing that I had more of an interest in nutrition, uh, he introduced me to Dave Harmon, who's now at Kentucky, uh, would be another obviously good person to visit with at some point, Dr. Hansen. But uh, Dave took me under his wing as a master's student um, and uh, 
you know, learned a lot of new teaks, the techniques relative to ruminant nutrition, very unique and novel uh, techniques. Just really had a great experience as a, as a master's student. Um, a little bit of academic inbreeding going on. David done his PhD at the University of Nebraska. And I, I visited several institutions, including Iowa State. Uh, Jerry Young and, of course, Don Bites, who's, who's uh, still there, had a great visit with those guys, but ultimately decided to go to Nebraska for a Ph.D. and work with Bud Britton, who's passed away. But Bud was a nutritional biochemist, uh, again, incredibly bright individual, remembered everything that he read uh, to the point of frustrating students because <laughs> um, he could, you know, he could kind of feed you just uh, enough rope where you wouldn't hang yourself, but but uh, really made students think. And I really, really appreciated that about, about Dr. Britton, just a tremendous scientist. A lot of other influencers there as well, like Terry Klopfenstein, who's also recently passed away. Rick Stock was part of that team at the time. And, and so very, very influential uh, PhD program, predominantly focused in nutritional biochemistry, but but it also had an opportunity to do some applied work. And Dr. Klopfenstein really got me thinking about systems. And really my my time there and interaction with Dr. Klopfenstein has, has molded and shaped my career in a lot of ways. You know, I was getting getting out of a specific silo relative to one aspect of the industry and really thinking more holistically which I think is critically important for us as, as the industry progresses and, and moves forward from here for sure. So postdoc at the Meat Animal Research Center. Again, Cal Farrell was there. Dr. Farrell had done some collaborative work with Dr. Britton. Uh, pretty natural fit with regard to me making that transition. Learned a lot. And, and I told uh, the story a lot of times how I, how I feel you know, my time at Mark was probably two of my favorite years uh, in an academic career because the sole focus is science. You have great resources and cattle and facilities and, and support from a, from a lab tech perspective. So really, really enjoyed those, those two years at the Medama Research Center. Um, then I had decisions to make relative to starting career paths. New Mexico State position came open, a ruminant nutritionist, 60% research, 40% teaching. My wife, uh, Shelly, and I at, at that time, you know, had known nothing else than the, than the Midwest. Um, and that experience took the opportunity to go to, to Las Cruces, New Mexico State. Obviously, it wasn't a postdoc. It was the start of an academic career, but learned so much in those four years, not, not just from getting a career started, but the, um, the cultural aspects, the diversity aspects, uh, things we really weren't even thinking about as much then really, really transformed us and allowed us to grow up a lot. So removing us from our comfort zone, moving us to a totally different culture was just huge for us, very impactful. Um, and then, of course, the production systems from the ag side are, are obviously very, very different. So the Chihuahua Desert, you know, we, we think about Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, maybe a cow-calf pair per 10 acres. In the Chihuahua Desert, it's a cow-calf pair per 1,000 acres. <laughs> and as you move farther north, of course, uh, 
that ratio changes. But but again, just had to really think about things differently, which was again very very influential and transformative for my thinking uh, as I started my career. Then I had the opportunity to go to Oklahoma State, and and uh, it was a position held by Fred Owens. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, think about the legend of Fred Owens. I, I don't really categorize myself in that space, but if I could have written my job description out of college with a 75% research, 25% teaching appointment, that would have been it. So that was a great opportunity uh, for me to be at Oklahoma State and, and again, um, built a career there, did a lot of wonderful science there, met a lot of great people. And uh, really, really enjoyed and, and uh, appreciate that time. And of course, still, still love that institution and the people there. Dr. Green, who was moving from vice chancellor of INR at Nebraska to chancellor of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, uh, invited me to apply for the department head at the University of Nebraska. It was an opportunity to, to go back. Uh, to where I received my PhD, which was which was interesting, but just a really really cool opportunity. Um, so I took took advantage of that, learned a lot about leadership and and being a leader. I had an opportunity to reconnect with Terry Kloppenstein before he passed away, which was which was just a tremendous opportunity, uh, and really that that whole group there. It's a little bit strange when you have, you know, faculty that you really looked up to and admired and taught you class, and now you're officially their boss. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a little strange, but they were all very gracious to me and very supportive and helpful to me. So it was a wonderful experience. Uh, and then um, this opportunity at Texas Tech came along, and again, I really at every stage, I've just tried to be the best I could be in the position that I've held and haven't, I'm, I'm not on some kind of journey to be a provost and president, right? I, I just, uh, as doors have opened to me and uh, the, uh, the opportunity felt right, I've looked into those opportunities. Of course, I've, at Oklahoma State, had done a lot of collaborative work in the panhandle. I've always a huge cattle feeding area, obviously. Uh, I've always admired the scientists here. Uh, of course, Dr. Gallion, Gallion, Mike Gallion, who's also an influencer and, and a huge mentor and, and friend of mine, uh, is here. So, it uh, again, the door opened and I looked at the opportunity and just just thinking about the future of agriculture and the needs, especially from a sustainability perspective, thinking more broadly, um, it just felt like a really good time and a really good place for me to make a transition. And, and so really excited. The transition has been great. I've been here since January. So just getting things rolling. Um, but uh, again, excited for the opportunity here as well. So I think you're in a really unique position, Clint, given kind of the stage of your career that you're at now to maybe um, give folks some advice about both choosing mentors, because I heard a lot of you know mentors mentioned there in your in your chat, but also how to be open to being mentored. Because sometimes you can, you know, you got to be willing to hear the advice and also know what advice is BS, right? And say that's, that's you, but that's not me, right? So having enough confidence to say that's not my journey, 
Um, so what kind of tips would you have for us on how to be a, you know, identifying mentors, but be opening to be mentored? Yeah. Yeah. Both, both great points and, and a really good question. And, and I think, um, I think seeking out and, and just maintaining a passion to learn, it, it really, it really starts with wanting to learn, having a desire to learn and to make a difference. Uh, and then I, I think, it becomes then a matter of aligning yourself with people that you can build very quick trust with, um, but also that you know uh, are open, passionate, empathetic about wanting to teach um, and have the same interests that that you do. And and so, I mean, as as students, right, we kind of fall into those scenarios. But but even with I go back to Harlan Warple, who taught at the you know a sophomore nutrition class. I, I think when those when you make those connections and things click, right, whether you know whether it's all on paper and well defined or whether it's just something you feel. I know as scientists we, <laughs> we struggle with that aspect, but sometimes you just know it, it's right. Uh, when you identify and 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 develop or, or believe you can develop those kinds of relationships with people, you know, take advantage of that to to the best of, of your ability. And and once you know and have confidence and trust in an individual, because because you um, have been around them some, you've heard about them, you know what they do and how they go about their work and how they go about treatment of others and. And if they're truly passionate about making a difference, uh, I, I think for most people, then it's natural just to be receptive to learn from from those individuals. So um, I don't know if there's really a script, but I think it's being open minded and and really seeking for those opportunities. And when those doors open to you, having uh, being brave enough and having enough confidence to step through those doors is is critically important. I think that's the definition of luck, right? The ability to recognize an opportunity when it presents itself. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. So let's kind of start with some of your work when you were at Oklahoma State. And I think, um, you know, I think about things like Ben Holland and folks that have come out of your research program there and some of the really cool stuff with, you know, do we do metaphylaxis? Do we not, you know, as we've moved towards more control and antibiotic use? So maybe kind of from like a 30,000 foot view first, Clint, what do you think are some of the, you know, biggest advances that we've had in the last 10, 15, 20 years in just our understanding of feedlot cattle health? Yeah. Well, certainly, certainly those tools like metaphylaxis have been important to us. Uh, I think, technologies and, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting in the weeds too quickly here, Dr. Hanson. I, I think, uh, moving forward though, technologies that allow us to recognize morbidity will be, will be critically important. Uh, a lot of things happen in, in nature, in our industry that we've probably not done a great job of recording. I think this information age of being able to connect things will be critically important to us. Uh, but I, I, I believe understanding stressors of calves, newly weaned calves, all of those, those aspects, uh, how we move and handle cattle or handle cattle and move cattle, 
um, from one point to the another to the next uh, has advanced. At least we have a, a greater understanding of risk categories of calves. So whether we're buying calves ranch direct or whether we're buying calves through an auction market uh, and distance traveled, how those animals may or may not be co-mingled. I think all of those things, again, at a very high level, have offered us some predictability in terms of how do we need to prepare to receive those calves from those different categories, whether they're low, moderate, or high risk, so that we're managing those animals on arrival for the, for the most successful outcomes for those animals. Um, so we, I, think we, I think as an industry, we've grown and we've learned a lot. We know what not to do. Uh, I think different producers uh, have different risk tolerance. And I, you know, again, as a scientist, I think we can help guide some of that. We, you talk to consultants and some consultants know who is able and willing to handle those higher risk calves and who should not be handling those higher risk calves. I think all of those things uh, are advantageous to the industry but we're not there yet, right? We need to continue to, to do better. And I, I think we have opportunities, especially with these newer technologies that give us some predictive power relative to is an animal, is an animal sick now? Are they hiding it uh, or, or are they going to get sick uh, post-arrival? So, um, okay. So I have two questions. I'm struggling which one to ask first. I'm going to ask this one first. Um, I feel like those of us who study one thing really intensely for a long time, we've always got that thing in the back of our mind that in every study, we're like, hmm, this does not fit my hypothesis. I need to dig into this more. And then you get that other study and you're like, okay, well, that did more what I expected. Um, is there something that, you know, because you moved into administration, right? So you weren't able to be, um, you know, at the feedlot doing as much research anymore. Is there a question that still kind of bugs you in the back of your mind. They're like, oh, I really wanted to find the answer to this question. Yeah. So I, I really got interested and in, in passionate about, you know, what what is the metabolic cost to an animal getting sick? I mean, again, at a high level, we understand and we've done the measurements relative to growth rates and carcass rates and weights and carcass quality, um, those aspects. But you know, I, I think from a nutritional perspective, uh, Stephanie, there's still a huge opportunity for us to uh, understand intermediary metabolism and specific nutrients, you know, relative to how should we be handling cattle on arrival, especially high-risk calves from a nutritional perspective to help them, you know, get on a good pathway. Again, a lot of that involves intake. And so getting those animals to eat is, is obviously critically important. So, you know, I, I would say the one study I didn't do that I would still love to do uh, would be, be a couple of them. One would be to understand the true energetic cost to morbidity, to bovine respiratory disease in particular, um, and probably more important than just what is the energy expense of that is uh, how could we alter intermediary metabolism, especially in the liver, uh, to, to ensure that the nutrient exchange meets the acute phase protein response in the liver uh, and the other, the other uh, immune function, the other immune response, but still provides 
uh, nutrients in the right order and array that allows for growth to continue, or at least the amount of time we stall that out is is decreased to the point that we don't have such a negative impact on on growth rate and ultimately carcass quality. Yeah, I love that. I'm kind of internally grinning here because we, as I record this from the third floor of Kildee Hall, in the first floor of Kildee Hall, we just moved cattle into our metabolism crates yesterday, and we're going to give them BRD in the next week. And we're basically going to do total nutrient balance on them right during the progression of the disease. And it's actually a terminal trial. So we'll actually be collecting other tissues and stuff. So working along with Jody McGill from um, our vet school on the immunology side. So I agree with you. And, you know, when you were talking about cost of energetics and stuff, I was like, oh, we need some respiratory chambers and, you know, things like that to really do that. So that's expensive research, right? It is. Yeah, it is very much so. But uh, again, formulating diets and we, we talk about formulating diets for receiving calves at a very high level, but there's still a lot we don't know. And so I think great to hear you're doing that study because I think there's still a lot of opportunity there for sure. Yeah, I want to circle back to your comment earlier too about um, technology use. So what are some of the opportunities you think you see for using some of these different technologies or future technologies that maybe the AIs will figure out for us <laughs> um, in terms of like getting on top of maybe a disease identification faster or being better prepared to deal with these sick animals? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, core core body temperature and even some of our intake behaviors are really really just the tip of the iceberg. And so, you know, I, I believe the sensor technologies. So much talk right now about robotics, and I'm not not thinking about robotics definitely in this space, but just the fact that we have a, the ability, the capability, to do a lot of tremendous things. So, you know, if you could if you could chip an animal. Uh, in a way that in real time would provide nutrient and probably cytokine and other immune markers in real time, in addition to core body temperature. Um, again, it's, it's very expensive and it's pie in the sky and it's a ways out there. But, but I, I really think at some point we can get to that, to where it's cost effective so that you you truly understand from a behavioral aspect, but also from a, a metabolic and immune function aspect, what's going on in the animal almost in real time as those animals are in transit once they arrive at the yard. Um, so I, I think those technologies are coming that will help us better manage those animals. Sort animals, again, relative to outcomes. Obviously, animals as humans all respond to stressors differently. Uh, there are, some are better equipped to deal with those, even from a metabolic perspective and previous history than others. Uh, I think understanding and being able to identify those differences is really going to move the industry forward in the future. So, so a lot of great things happening now. I mean, the, you know, the whisper technology, ultrasound, being able to identify lung lesions on arrival, um, or formation thereof. Even even core body temperature, although, you know, depending on environment, there's a lot of influencers on that. The intake aspect is critically important. Movement is critically important. And and so we're moving in that direction. But I think I think it'll go a step further, right? Where the markers will be more specific to specific diseases that will allow us to better manage those animals. 
we still talk about, and, and I've been out of the literature certainly longer than, than you have, but we still talk about differentiating, differentiating between BRD and acidosis, for example, right? Surely there's, you know, there's ways that we can monitor those to better understand what we're truly dealing with, whether we're imposing a metabolic disorder or whether it's actually a disease state for the animal. That's actually one of the things that I am super hopeful that some of these big AI kind of platforms will be able to do for us in science is, um, you know, so you think about some of the articles that I've read about, you know, the ability to potentially find new drugs to overcome antibacterial resistant strains of things, or, you know, identifying a new biomarker for something, right? Like I live in the space of mineral nutrition. We search for biomarkers all the time. Most of them are pretty elusive. So exactly what you're talking about, right? Is there an opportunity to say, be much more precise with our nutrition, right? Like this animal's not just sick, he's sick with this and he needs this specific nutrition package that we've just, you know, figured out or he needs this specific, you know, antimicrobial package or, or whatever. So I agree with you. I think that there's going to be like, you know, so they've called AI stuff is like kind of like a printing press moment, right? So it's this big sea change. And all of a sudden, those of us who don't necessarily understand how to do big pathway stuff and omics stuff and everything, are we going to have an awesome tool to help us use that and make really practical decisions? Absolutely. And then one thing I may just lift up here, um, kind of open the door is, is I, you know, we, we tend to, we're obviously experts at something. You and I are ruminant nutritionists and we can boil that down. You know, you are world renowned. Stephanie is a, as a, uh, mineral nutritionist, much more than that, right? But but a, but a, a ruminant nutritionist that really uh, is an expert in in mineral nutrition. Uh, I'm probably more global, but again, the receiving cat's health, maybe some metabolic disorder kinds of things on the feedlot side. But to really address these questions holistically, we're going to have to reach outside of our expertise and comfort zone. So working with the geneticists and the omics folks and the engineers, especially, I think is a huge opportunity for us. So I hope in ac academia and one of my goals as a dean is to, you know, start to tear down those silos and those barriers, bring those, those experts together, that expertise together to, to be able to tackle these grand challenges. I think as we think about sustainability and a growing population and the need to feed a world, uh, we're going to have to do that in the future. So appreciated your comment there. Yeah, yeah actually, uh, tell us a little bit more about some of those things, right? Because actually, the last guest that I interviewed, we talked about how she kind of works in an interdisciplinary space between room and microbiology and genetics. And that's great, except for, like I always say, whenever the geneticists come to a meeting with the nutritionist, one or both of us needs a dictionary to understand what the hell the other person said, right? We used to joke when Jerry Taylor would say input that Dan Loy and I would take a shot because it was our drinking game because he was, you know, we were like, we don't even know what that means. You took a little data and made big data, like, you know, like we were just teasing, but it, the, the point is like, and then as a faculty member, I need to be able to say, like, this was my piece. I did this publication. I had this graduate student. But then we get graduate students who don't understand computer science who or don't understand cattle handling. And so we ended up hiring two graduate students to really do that job. So I'm super curious what your thoughts are and how we can help. Because I totally agree. The system stuff is super important. The logistics make it hard. It does. It does. And by the way, it was great to see EG on your on your podcast the other day because had the opportunity to hire her when I was at Nebraska. One wonderful, wonderful person. 
She um, is and, hilarious. And, yeah. <laughs> she is hilarious. Yeah. Students, students love her for sure. So, um, I, I think first thing we have to get over is ourselves. Right. And, and so, I mean, part of what got us to where we are is, is some degree at least of confidence, um, maybe not to the point of arrogance, but, you know, certainly uh, we, we understand our strengths and, and we'd love to, to hold to that language. So, so it gets really gets back to building a high level of trust, which isn't always easy. And it takes the right mix of people and deans can't decide who that right mix of people is, right? So it really takes, you know, organic relationships being built at the faculty level and coming together, understanding that we all don't speak the same language, but, you know, getting back to our earlier conversation, uh, a willingness to learn from each other and challenge, right? That's what we do as scientists. It's important that we challenge dogma uh, and, and that opportunity exists as well. But I, but I think bringing experts together that, that see it as something bigger than themselves and the importance and the need of of uh, attacking or tackling those grand challenges going forward, again, getting out of our own way, uh, not not being completely humble, obviously understanding that we bring our expertise to the team, but then listening and learning from the other expertise because we're all working on a collective issue to, again, to, to address a, a challenge or a problem. So I, I think the opportunities exist. I, again, I just think we... It, it changes things because that's not what we're used to in academia. Uh, but I think it'll be, again, I think it'll be important to us going forward. So. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how we fund some of these systems projects or kind of grand challenges, right? Because we have had some of the big cap proposal grants from the USDA, but, you know, even if they are five or 10 or 20 million, there's only one or two of them. And, you know, wheat gets one and, you know, fish get one or whatever, like, you know, we're, we're just all competing against plant and then all of animal ag. So I feel like it needs to get outside of that space. Right. So do you have any thoughts on, you know, how we get folks starting to think about maybe pooling resources across companies or thinking about some of these different foundations? Yeah. I, I think those partnerships will be critical for us to be able to have the resources to do this. And, and our, even at the Dean's level, right. Our administration will need to see the vision as well. And, and we'll need to, to help sell that um, in, in terms of the need, because, you know, obviously resources get steered within the universities. Universities are big complex organizations and, uh, every one is important, right? So it's it's very difficult to totally pull resources away from something to fund something else, and those resources are limited. So I think to your point, right, all sources of money uh, that are green add value to the academic system. And so foundations, I think partnering with industry, and that's challenging because the industries are competing amongst themselves. And so who do you who do you get to come to the table? Uh, that wants to play in the space uh, is complicated. But I, I think uh, having an idea, a well-articulated idea is first and foremost important. I think having producers that will, um, that, that understand the need and the value because they're living it day in and day out and they want to sustain, right, their business for the next generation they're a little, they're a little more willing, I think, even as even as our producers get larger, 
to come together and be a little more transparent uh, in terms of sharing their data. But I, but I think if, if they will come together, see the need, get behind the need and advocate for us, that then will get the industry engaged. That'll get the big, the bigger, you know, larger companies that can help support some of these ideas engaged. Uh, and, and then ultimately, you know, the federal government is thinking more holistically and, and requiring teams. So I think when those opportunities do come along, animal science definitely needs to be at the table. Uh, and then when we land those, right, we need to make sure we're delivering uh, and we're delivering in a meaningful way. Early on, and I know I know this has changed, but you know, back back in my generation, if you will, you know, a lot of times we'd we'd write these collaborative grants, but the tendency was, okay, we got the funding, so now let's just go back to our silo and do the work with our piece of the resource. We might figure out how to integrate it back. We may not, uh, but I but I think we definitely need to deliver uh, in a meaningful way. Uh, that truly addresses the question that was asked or the hypothesis to be tested when we wrote the grant in the first place, if that makes sense. So I, I don't have an easy answer, uh, but I but I, I think if we don't start talking about it and thinking about it, um, right, we're going to be behind the curve. So You know, it's funny, you kind of were alluding to this, but it's really like our science communication, right? So not only our interpersonal communication and the ability to work with others who aren't necessarily in our discipline and to communicate with them, but also then to, for example, put our science in a layman's context so that anybody can understand it, right? We have a serious jargon problem sometimes, right? Where, you know, depending if we're talking to somebody from the legislature or talking to a producer or a vet, like, you know, you throw down your jargon and they're like, well, that sounded impressive, but I had no idea what you said, so I'm not going to care about it, right? And I'm certainly not going to fund it again. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. And I'm I'm as guilty as anyone about using the jargon for sure. So yeah. So Clint, I think um, as we kind of start to roll towards the end of the interview here, I think you're in a really unique position from um, a boy who grew up in Kansas on the Simital Ranch to having kind of the undergrad and undergrad research opportunity and graduate school and then being on the other side of the fence as a faculty member and now as an administrator. How have you seen or what do you see as the challenges for the beef industry that, you know, have kind of evolved over time and maybe kind of ending with what do you think are the big challenges we face today? Yeah, well, certainly this, uh, you know, the, the conversation around around climate change will be critically important to us and, and sustainability. So how do we sustain this industry? You know, I'm, I'm in a region where they're counting years of water left uh, based on measurements that we can take, right? And, and so, I mean, it's a, it's a sizable number of years, but it's still quantifiable, or at least we think it is. So uh, I, I think, how do, we, how do we think about sustaining uh, our industry will be, will be critically important to, to, to the future of the beef industry? So I, th I think, you know, we have opportunities to, to be better. Um, first and foremost, though, we, 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 we still need science. I say we still need science. Now, more than ever, we need science to be part of the storytelling, Right. If we don't have sound data to truly understand uh, the impact of our industry, um, right? We don't we don't have any basis to have a conversation. So critically, critically important. You know, I just 
think about going back to uh, to this whole receiving calf or this high risk calf model. Um, even even management strategies that take risk out of livestock production as an opportunity still for the industry and important. I think again the technologies we already talked about will you know will be influential there in in the future. But we need to be we need to be managing our livestock for success for successful outcomes for the livestock and of course for livestock do well then then the producers do do well also critically important. Uh, but then thinking about resource use, and I know there's you're working on it. There's a lot of scientists working on truly understanding the the footprint of livestock production. But I, you know, I think we ought to really be talking about the value to those ecosystems, our grazing management, using those resources, cattle or upcyclers, just continuing to tell the great story from a beef cattle perspective of how important that industry is to the future of food security is uh, is a huge opportunity for us but we need that we need the data right we we truly need to understand uh, the nutrient recycling the carbon recycling how concentrated animal feeding is is potentially uh, you know providing some risk, but, but also providing resources. So how do we capture those nutrients to recycle those nutrients that are a natural process uh, for row crop production, for example, um, or energy to drive operations, driving the feed mill or the feed trucks or, or all of uh, those kinds of conversations. So I, I think we're, we're at a critical uh, crossroads, but it's a great opportunity for the industry. And I, I feel and see the industry coming together, having bigger conversations. You know, NCBA put out their strategic plan. Um, so there's big organizations coming together that are focused, that see the need uh, to truly understand uh, beef cattle production and our, our impact on um, sustainability, all the pillars of sustainability moving forward. And so I think, I think we're in a good place, but we need, the, we, we need not to relax, right? We really need to forge ahead while, while we have this opportunity. Yeah, I love that. I've had, this might be my fourth interview that I've done just this week. And I feel like everybody has had just a really positive outlook on the future for beef, whether it was from the consumer perspective, talking to somebody from the packing side, or whether it was like the omics and the technology and, you know, the opportunities that exist, right? And I'm just even sitting here listening to you thinking, you know, man, if we have the opportunities to figure out really what our claim to fame needs to be on beef, right? Is it the nutrition of it? Is it the upcycling of it? Is it the family story, you know, right? Like those of us who raise beef is because we were raised in that industry or we learned that passion in college or, or something, right? So beef has just such a cool story to tell. Yeah. And I, and I think it's all of the above, right? So, I mean, the, the nutrients, including minerals uh, and uh, amino acids, bioavailable amino acids packed in a three ounce serving of beef is really, really um, so. And then you look at the ratio of those nutrients to the caloric density of that product. I mean, it, it's just really amazing. So, yeah, absolutely. It's time for our famous three. We have reached that special time of our interview where we're ready for the famous three questions. So, are you ready for these? Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, 
Question number one, what is your favorite beef resource? Uh, this this may seem too obvious, uh, but but I really still love, and, and this is really more ruminant nutrition, Stephanie, than it is beef, but, but Church's uh, ruminant physiology book, I go back to that resource and tell all of the students I've, or told all of the students I've had and would, would tell any new ones, that's a book you don't want to sell back, right? Keep keep that in your in your library. And, you know, one thing I've really enjoyed about and I go back to a lot is we, we think about how ruminant nutrition has evolved over time. And and early chapter in that book, right, talking about just observing ruminants in nature and that we have some that are roughage selectors and we have some that are concentrate selectors and then we have those intermediary groups. You just think, and, and then showing the uh, the rhythm of motility uh, in in the rumen in the rumen uh, of those animals, looking at the size of the gut, size of the rumen and the gastrointestinal tract more holistically. Uh, it's just really amazing to me to to consider then how our industry has evolved from a nutritional perspective, uh, and how we can adapt animals to those different nutrients or nutrition profiles. And the same thing happens that happens in nature. And in fact, that's probably part of the storytelling that we that we may not do a good enough job of, right? Is uh, ungulates, ruminants have been a part of our ecosystem since the beginning. And so we're just adapting uh, modern day domestic ruminants in a way that's, that's feeding a growing population. Again, with a very highly uh, nutrient dense uh, food stuff for, for, for human consumption. So anyhow, I, I love that resource. I keep it on my shelf and go back to it often. So That's perfect. I was actually looking, I keep my laptop when I record in here sitting on a stack of books. I was looking at my stack to see if my church book was on there, but it's still in the office. So I have lots of mineral books under here right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So church, that's a great, great answer. Okay. Question number two, what is a book not related to beef that you are reading right now? Yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna be in trouble. It's related to food. Um, we, we're at a we're at a so it's food versus foodies. Um, we're we're at a really interesting time in our in our culture uh, in the U.S. Of course, there's this huge divide, and I'm definitely don't want to get into the politics of it all. Um, but but I think we have a real opportunity, especially in in academia. So those of us that work in colleges of agriculture where more and more of our student body is coming from urban backgrounds. Um, I, I truly believe that we're, we're born with an innate desire to touch dirt, right? To play in the soil. Uh, and, and of course, um, most students love animals and, and not just animal scientists, right? But you think about how the pet industry has evolved the pathway to animal science is, is mostly now through a local veterinarian uh, and a student that wants to go to vet school, right? And so um, we 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 have that we've evolved into this disconnect. There's a number of agriculturists that are actually doing production agriculture is about one and a half percent of the total U.S. population. So that number has gotten small. We've disconnected people with where their food comes from. You know, we and it's created this interesting battle where we're. And again, we're in a we're in a wealthy society in the U.S. Uh, where where we're thinking about you know so much about how our food is produced, right? Where it's produced, 
what what are the implications of producing that food? And I, I think we've lost sight of the value of not everyone, right, is as fortunate as we are, you know, relative to our ability to to go make sort uh, uh, choices, make choices in the grocery store. So I think I think reconnecting students across the spectrum of learners, <clears throat> excuse me, with where their food comes from and how it's produced, whether it's vegetables or or meat products, uh, is a need for us. And and I think that has an opportunity to unite us uh, in a space where we're very divided. So that that's just a just a good book that kind of illustrates and talks about that whole big picture and concept. And so something I I think a lot about now, especially. You know, as we're recruiting students and fewer and fewer production ag students, more and more urban students, the need to integrate those populations, to grow together, to learn from each other, to respect each other, uh, but but to truly understand, again, from science, how food is produced, why it's produced, and, and thinking outside of ourselves to, okay, that's us here, right? But there's there's other people that are less fortunate. How do we how do we reach all people with uh, with highly nutritious, edible, highly palatable foodstuffs? Absolutely. Okay. Third and final question: What is a trait of someone you know that has allowed them to be successful? So, you know, one one of my academic heroes, and I, I again, when I talk to graduate students and have in the past, encourage them to read a lot, um, to learn a lot when I go to meetings, to interact with people and, and really, really think about what are the, the characteristics of really good scientists, but also really good people. Right. And so, um, you know, I, Mike Gallion has always been that for me. And, and I, I think, uh, thinking about, uh, characteristics. And I heard him give this talk and, and he won uh, won our Graduate of Distinction Award at Oklahoma State when I was still on the faculty there. Gave a really cool talk to graduate students. Um, it, you know, and it, it really boils down at the end of the day to treating others as, as you want to be treated the same way you want to be treated. But I, I think about um, uh, someone who's approachable, who's empathetic, right? Who understands that not everyone comes from the same place or starts from the same place, uh, but is passionate about about making a difference. Um, I, I think those are those are great characteristics. I think the other, the hard skills, if you will, are kind of innate to, to what we do and who we are, right? So someone who is an analytical thinker, thinks critically, um, you know, Mike, Mike would say, and I really appreciated about this about his talk was, don't don't be ashamed of or afraid of your weaknesses. So be be willing to identify where your weak spots are, and if you're if you're truly uh, again desired to uh, to be the best in your field, you can learn those. So if you're a little bit weak in math, you're a little bit weak in chemistry. You know you can take the time to learn those. If you identify them as weaknesses, maybe it's writing skills. You can practice those things and get better at those. Uh, but but we shouldn't, you know, too many of us, and I'm probably guilty of this as well. We have a weakness. We want to hide it and act like it doesn't exist. The reality is we have the opportunity 
nothing but time, right, to try to fix those deficiencies and, and make yourself better. So I think it's also that idea or mindset of always trying to improve from where you're at right now. Excellent. Well, Dr. Crable, this has been really fun having a conversation with you here today. We're so grateful that you were able to come on the Beef Podcast Show. And uh, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Dr. Hansen. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed the conversation and appreciate the opportunity.